Kraut, or progressive utilization theory, was developed in 1959 as a practical alternative to the theories of capitalism and communism. Dada Mahash Varananda is an American yogi and economist at the Prout Research Institute of Venezuela. He's the author of a new book, After Capitalism, Economic Democracy in Action. He'll be speaking at the Rocky Mountain Peace and Justice Centre in Boulder next Tuesday. The progressive utilization theory is an alternative socio-economic model that helps local economies, helps communities, and can actually create a just world. It's based on the economic self-reliance of every country, state, region. It's based on cooperatives. It's based on environmental protection of the environment. And it's based on ethical and spiritual values. Is this something that is actually in action in any country, any society in the world? No entire country has implemented But there's models and projects all over the world on every continent. Um, I work in Venezuela, for example, at the Prout Research Institute of Venezuela. And we have a community project that's two hours outside of Caracas that's called Centro Madre. It's a women's project that empowers women and strengthens community and does sustainable organic agriculture. That's now a national model of small-scale sustainable agriculture. There are cooperatives all over the world. You know, for example, today there's more than a million, a billion members of cooperatives in the world. They provide 20% more jobs than all the multinational corporations put together. They're much more likely to succeed. The, the failure rate of new U.S. companies today is, you know, between 60 to 80% in the first year failure rate, and cooperatives less than 10% fail. And after five years, only two to th- three to five percent of U.S. private corporations are still functioning, whereas nearly ninety percent of cooperatives aren't. So cooperatives are functioning, pro- projects are co- functioning, economic democracy works in communities. The problem is the media doesn't tell you. Is this something that could function in what we think of as a traditional capitalist country like the U.S.? Can we see this functioning here or is it something that communities would just have to take on board that we're never going to see it from a a federal, from a governmental level? I think you'll see it in the United States when the corporate model collapses. You know, the economy is terminally ill. The U.S. economy, the global capitalist economy is terminally ill. You know, they, they're in debt way over their head. They're in, uh, you know, they're not taking account of the environmental effects of their destruction. They are, um, they're not sustainable in any way, shape, or form. And when that system collapses, then suddenly every small alternative model and community cooperative is going to become very important. People will buy locally. People will buy local food. And they'll make the connections that today are considered unimportant and irrelevant by the corporate media. Well, speaking of the media, we've just had a major presidential election here. Now, a lot of the corporate media focus is on what is being described as the fiscal cliff. But it seems certainly that the discussion around the economics of this is just so narrow. And uh, you you 
talked about in a recent post on your blog, the Pride blog, about a myth that rich people and companies and countries became rich because they were smarter and worked harder. That seems to be something that's endlessly perpetuated, certainly in the media here and in, in society in the US. Can you maybe talk a little bit about that and how that might relate to that attitude relates to the ongoing discussion here about what's happening with the fiscal cliff? Well, that's the thing. You know, yes, we're in the, the country is in terrible debt. And yet they're not understanding that what is needed. For example, more than 48 percent of the U.S. debt is due to the military, the current and previous military wars. Um, we have enough money to pay for everything, to employ everyone. The trouble is that's not the goal. Uh, the priority of an economy should be to first meet the minimum necessities of life for everyone, food, clothes, shelter, education, housing, health. You know, why can't we give free health care to everyone like they do all over Europe, like they do in Venezuela, like they do in half the world? We can offer that. It doesn't cost 30 percent of every 30 cents on every dollar spent in this in the United States on health care goes to the insurance companies, CEOs and corporate owners. It does, you know, that 30 percent alone would pay for health care coverage of everyone. So it's doable. We're not talking rocket science. What we're talking about is corporate interests that don't want it. Well, how do we get there? from here, as they say, given, as you said, there's corporate controlled media basically exclude any type of alternative discussion around the economy, around economic democracy. So how do we get to that point where we do have economic democracy? And corporate media also tells us that you can't do anything, that there's no way you can change the world. The only one who can do anything at all is the United States president. It's a myth. It's a lie. You know, no major change in this country has ever taken place through presidential elections. Independence from England, the end of slavery, you know, the, the civil rights movement, the women's movement, the getting out of Vietnam. None of these took place through a presidential election. They took place through mass uprising, civil disobedience, and, uh, you know, a change of consciousness. And the change of consciousness, I think, is the most important factor. Because when people realize that there, is, there are alternatives, it is possible to change the world. We have a power within us. Together, nothing is impossible. Then things will change very fast. And the, at the same time, we're having a collapse of the current economic model, the U.S. economy. There have been 77 empires in history. And only one of them still exists, the United States Empire. Do you think it will last forever? I don't. But the corporate media says it will. It doesn't make sense. That was Dada Mahash Varananda. He's with the Prout Research Institute of Venezuela. He's also the author of a new book, After Capitalism, Economic Democracy in Action. And he'll be speaking at the Rocky Mountain Peace and Justice Centre at 7pm on Tuesday, December 4th. They're at 3970 Broadway in Boulder. And uh, we're linking to their website, which has directions at kgnu.org forward slash morning mag. And we're also linking to the website for the Prout 
Krauts Institute in Venezuela at kgnu.org. At KGNU. It's the economy. That's the name of tonight's show. I'm Maeve Conran. After Capitalism, Economic Democracy in Action. That's the name of the new book by Dada Mahash Varananda. He's the founder of the Prout Institute in Venezuela. I caught up with him when he was in Boulder recently and I asked him about the Prout economic theory. Prout is the progressive utilization theory. It's an alternative economic model to build a, and a social model as well, to build a new society that's based for the happiness and welfare of everyone. How to share the resources of the planet so that everyone can benefit. So it's a model that, that, you know, it's extremely broad. It's very holistic. It's very integrated. And it has a, a certainly an ethical, ecological, and spiritual dimension, which is sadly lacking in most economic systems. It sounds like it's very egalitarian and that most people should support this. And yes, as, yet, as you said, uh, it goes against really the kind of the dominant economic paradigm that we see certainly in Western cultures, which is capitalism. What are the real main fundamental differences that we're seeing between capitalism and Prout? Okay. In, in, in law, in general, everybody has certain freedoms, but those freedoms are limited in case you are infringing on the rights of someone else, the freedoms of someone else. We don't have that same principle in economics, and I think we should. Um, you can... So there's no limits to the accumulation of wealth. And when the resources of the planet are limited, then the more money you get, the less money somebody else is going to get. The money is not an infinite amount. The land is not an infinite amount of land in the world. And the uh, natural resources are not unlimited. So because everything is finite, we need a way to share those resources in a more egalitarian way, we need to, to reduce the tremendous difference between the richest people and the poorest. That difference should not never disappear completely. People need incentives. They need encouragement. But we should make it much more egalitarian. It seems that certainly here in the U.S. we're actually moving away from that system. With recent Supreme Court decisions, we're seeing more rights being afforded to corporations. We're seeing more disparity in wealth uh, division where the rich are getting richer and everybody else is getting poorer or standing right. still. Um, more accumulation of wealth with a very small minority of very rich people right. and uh, exploitation of resources by a small group of corporations as well. Was there ever a time in U.S. history when when we were more egalitarian, when we were more towards that proud concept of economics? Of course. <laughs> and, and the history of cooperatives in this country is a very rich history. Um, corporate capitalism is doing its best to defeat cooperatives. Um, they're passing laws that are discriminatory for cooperatives. They're passing taxes, which are discriminate. You know, when the recent NAFTA agreement was, you know, between the North America, Canada, United States, and Mexico was set up, um, uh, cooperatives in Mexico were suddenly taxed at three times the previous rate. This was in the small print in this NAFTA, you know, agreement. And so all the cooperatives basically had to stop and re-register as a 
civil association which is allowed in Mexico so they wouldn't be taxed out of existence. So this kind of discrimination and this kind of uh, has been coming more and more recently because global capitalism is so voracious and so uh, dangerous, in fact. Could you see something that really tipped us to this? Has this been a gradual trend over the years where we're moving towards this less egalitarian society in terms of economics, where corporations have more control? Or was there, you know, really a point in history where we can say, okay, here's where the ideology really changed and and really tipped towards uh, the, the status quo where we are right now? It's interesting, Maeve, because there's often been these two currents in in this country, in the United States, for example. There's been a cooperative movement. There's been a very active labor movement. There's been a very strong movement for social justice. There's been the Occupy movement. Simultaneously with all these movements, there's been corporate power, which is trying to amass more and more power and more and more control. So you have, yes, politicians that are virtually the puppets controlled by big money, big capitalists. Uh, So both are going on simultaneously. Uh, The interesting question is when will the cooperative movement win out? When will global capitalism collapse? Because the whole theory of too big to fail, you know, when the banks were bailed out, for example, this theory from social Darwinism that the, you know, the biggest are the most important and they should survive. Uh, So the same time that the 10 biggest banks are being bailed out, 150 small and medium-sized commercial banks are going bankrupt. Nobody bailed them out. Why is this when actually the the statistics all show that small businesses create more jobs than big, big corporations do? Cooperatives create more jobs than all corporations do. So we have a very unequal system today. I think people look back to 2008 as a time where there really could have been fundamental change in our economy. It was when the economy was really collapsing. There was the bailouts of the banks, the auto companies. We were starting to see a lot of discontent about the status quo. And yet, maybe apart from the Occupy movement, nothing has really emerged from that to change consciousness. Or am I misstating that? What are your thoughts? Lots of things are happening in this country that are ignored by corporate media. So I won't agree with you that nothing's happening. I think tremendous things are happening everywhere. Everywhere I go, I'm visiting cooperatives and meeting people who are political activists, who are doing local economies, who are doing local food. You know, so there's this tremendous movement out there and it's everywhere and people are connecting and community radio like this one. Um, these are all alternatives to the status quo. So this is happening constantly. And the more these movements can link up, the stronger they'll be. Um, There's a tendency in this country, yes, for individualism. That's always been there. There's also a tendency for community. And we need to strengthen communities and transform individuals so that people can really realize their passions become involved and change this world and make it the way we want it to be. So I guess I should kind of restate what I was saying there. When I say nothing's happening, I suppose nothing's happening at a political level. We're not seeing any change in the political, the the, the establishment, 
essentially it's business as usual for large corporations. But as you correctly said, there's a lot of movement happening at a grassroots level. Can you give us an example of uh, people that you've met here in the US? And of course, in a few moments, we'll talk about your experience in Venezuela mm-hmm. and other countries. Mm-hmm. But on, on your travels and your book tour promoting after capitalism, who have you met that, that's really maybe living out this new egalitarian vision of, a, of an economy, some co- uh, cooperatives that could maybe inspire people? Good question. Um, I, I, I didn't get to Cleveland this time, but the Evergreen Cooperatives of Cleveland are very exciting. So just let me mention that first because, you know, this small group of community organizers saw the Afro-American communities very impoverished, very low uh, average income. And at the same time, there are these big hospitals there that are buying $2 billion of supplies and food every day, every year, I'm sorry. And, you know, they said, we want to tap into this, and we want to demand that they buy locally. So they started cooperatives on the Mondragon model from Spain. This is the most successful cooperative model where there's more than 80,000 cooperative workers working owning their own enterprises, managing their own enterprises. Very exciting. They use that model. And they're every year, you know, 10% of the profits from each cooperative go to starting new cooperatives to creating new jobs. So they have a cooperative for, for example, greenhouse, state-of-the-art greenhouse producing tens of thousands of heads of lettuce every day, you know, uh, for salads. It's it's fantastic. They have state-of-the-art laundry service, which is, you know, using non-toxic chemicals, much less water, you know, so uh, a a green uh, laundry service. They have um, state-of-the-art solar installation uh, cooperative. Now, they take only the best of the best, meaning everybody has to be an ex-felon to get a job in that one. And it's going great. And they're providing more and more jobs. And in the wintertime, when they don't have so much work, then they do winterizing um, uh, poor um, uh, apartments and houses. So it's really helping the community and at the same time providing jobs for everyone. So that's one. Um, the f- local food, seeing these community gardens in every town I go to, seeing these CSA farms, community-supported agriculture, it's very exciting. People everywhere are de- tre- developing tremendous desire to buy locally food. And finally, this Illinois project, the Food Farms and Jobs, which is tremendous. Illinois, very briefly, is a state with... You know, um, it's every year it's first or second in corn and soybeans. It's an agriculture state, tremendous production. And yet it's all going to the global economy. The people are buying uh, $49 billion of food every year, and 95% of that is imported food. So people want to buy their own food locally. And so they're trying to train uh, farmers, opening more and more markets of local food. And so they're creating a tremendous infrastructure to actually provide farmers with the ability to switch over out of the corporate uh, model and go local. Well, let's also talk about the Occupy movement, which just raising awareness nationwide about alternative ways of running our economy have been tremendously successful. And not just ideologically, but 
to actually implement change here in Denver. They've been very um, active around uh, stopping foreclosures happening. And even what happened recently with the uh, Superstorm Sandy in the East Coast, they have really been an integral part of relief. So what are your thoughts on the Occupy movement and and the future of it? Let me go backwards briefly. (laughs) I I was an activist during the Vietnam War. And I was very disturbed at that time, confused too. Um, there's, there's a war that I don't feel is just that is being fought by my government in my name, and I don't have a way to stop it. Uh, I don't know if anybody younger can appreciate that, but that's what we felt like at the time of the Vietnam War. And uh, originally I became a conscientious objector. Then I burned my draft card. I wrote to the draft board, told them I'm breaking the law. I'm not going to cooperate anymore because I didn't agree with it. And uh, uh, so I had a poster on my wall by Che Guevara that said, a statement by Che, at the risk of sounding ridiculous, I would say that the true revolutionary is guided by great feelings of love. And I thought, that's what I want to be. I want to change this world as fast as possible, but I want to do it with love. If love is not there, it doesn't make sense. I mean, people burn out, people get angry, people fight. People, you know, it doesn't work. It, there has to be love there. And so then I learned yoga and meditation as a hobby. And that inspired me to transform my life and to be, try to be a more loving person inside, try to be a more peaceful person, and at the same time be a revolutionary. So my whole life, you know, I have so much sympathy, so much feeling of, of, of connection with the Occupy movement, and it hasn't died. They've lost their pieces of, of territory, <laughs> occupied territory, but they're occupying ideas, and these ideas are spreading like wildfire. That's Dada Mahash Varananda. He is my guest here at KGNU on It's the Economy. I'm Maeve Conran, and Dada's new book is After Capitalism, Economic Democracy in Action. And uh, he has a blog. We'll give information about that later in the show. He also lives in Venezuela, where he... uh, He's in residence at the Prout Institute, is that the correct way right. of characterizing? Right. I founded it. It's the Prout Research Institute of Venezuela. I founded um, the director currently. We have a board. Um, we normally have about 10 volunteers. About half are Venezuelans and half are people from other countries. For example, now we have uh, one from Mexico and one from Argentina and myself. Um, but we're working with cooperatives. We're trying to strengthen cooperative movement and spreading the ideas of Prout as a form of progressive socialism as an alternative or as the way that the country is moving anyway uh, to make a more just society. And Prout, once again, a progressive utilization theory. And uh, I can imagine that fits into Venezuelan society a lot more than right here in the U.S. It's very popular. Um, For example, the, the Ministry of Agriculture Its goal is to make the country self-reliant in agriculture, um, in food. So it's using Via Campesinos, for example, principles of food sovereignty and food sovereignty. And so this allows, uh, so every state, every community as far as possible should be self-reliant in food. In this project I mentioned in Illinois, for example, FEMA is very interested because FEMA calculates in the whole country there's only three days supply of food in this country. 
counting all the food in all the homes, all the food in all the supermarkets, and all the distribution centers. You know, if any natural calamity happens, for example, a, you know, an earthquake knocks out all the bridges, in three days the people are out of food. So this is a very serious matter. And, uh, you know, to make our world as self-sufficient as possible in food, still allowing trading, of course, but first each, you know, self-sufficient, the basics. There's a large localization movement right here in Colorado and Boulder County and other uh, front range counties really centered on local food and trying to raise awareness about the need, not just the benefits, but the actual need that we have. Talk a little bit more about that, about how food and food access is, it's not just a an ideological issue, but it's it's a fundamental security issue. Right. And it's a health issue as well. Uh, for example, when they started this project in Illinois, Food, Farms and Jobs, you can see it on the internet, um, seven government departments got all interested. In addition to FEMA, the, the, um, the Social Welfare Department um, is very interested because they know that the food that they're giving, the, the food that they're giving to their, their clients is creating diabetes. So they want to get more locally grown food uh, to help the, the health of the clients. Um, all over, the medical profession is realizing that prevention is worth much more than, than cure. And so that means, again, encouraging people to have a healthier diet, um, more more vegetables, more fruits in the diet, so that people you know get more fiber, healthier, and um, reduce the chronic diseases that they're suffering from. So yes, it's a health concern. It's a it's a community concern. It's um, also resilience. When you buy, you know, every Donald a dollar spent at McDonald's, ninety cents is leaving your community and going into corporate pockets. You know, very little money stays among the employees in that shop and actually circulates in the community. When you buy at a local restaurant, almost a hundred percent of your money stays in the community because it's local food prepared locally. You're paying the employees; all the money circulates, and so you have a much healthier local economy. And, of course, the hidden costs of importing food, the carbon footprint of a tomato imported from Chile that you might buy in a Colorado supermarket as opposed to one grown in your own county. Absolutely. Well, we talked earlier about the cooperatives. You mentioned Mm -hmm. the most successful Mm -hmm. one, I suppose, Mm -hmm. is in Spain, the Madrigal. Right, Madrigal. Argentina has also become very well known for cooperatives, particularly after their... Worker takeovers. Worker takeovers after their economic collapse. Can you maybe talk a little bit about what happened there? Right, because um, it's the IMF, basically. It's, again, you know, they were... The the country was going bankrupt. Um, 50% of the people were becoming unemployed or subemployed. And so there was tremendous recession, depression, I would call it. And uh, so when factories started closing, the workers started taking them over and uh, reopening them. uh, And the community supported that. And so both in Argentina, in Brazil, there have been hundreds of these factories, hotels, other institutions that have... um, have been recuperated, they call it. And the workers themselves manage them. The workers barter and trade with other um, uh, recovered factories. 
And so it's, it's, it's a strong economy, and it's an inspiring example. Noam Chomsky, in my, in my conversation with Noam Chomsky, which is Chapter 13 of this book, he talked about this model and the need for Occupy to move into factories that are closing and encourage the workers and the communities to take over those factories and run them locally to, to benefit the people and benefit the communities. With our current laws... Do you think that that's something that's viable? Sure, it's viable. It depends on... on Together, nothing's impossible. Together, we can make anything happen. And it's a question of when there's enough force, you, you can push through every every obstacle, every wall, and every law that's thrown at you. Well, in addition to your book, After mm-hmm. Capitalism, and your work at mm-hmm. the Pride Institute, you also blog about economics right. and, and, and various different things. In a recent posting on your blog, you talked about what you describe as a myth. And the myth is that rich people, companies and countries became rich because they were smarter and worked harder. How has that myth, as you call it, been perpetuated here in the US? Well, it's interesting. I mean, I, certainly some rich companies and people are very smart and do work very hard. But an awful lot of poor people work very hard. They work three jobs sometimes. Uh, why? Because they have to survive. Um, a lot of poor people are very smart. Um, so there's no exclusivity about brains or hard work with rich people. In fact, so it's, it's, it's not a relationship and it, of course, the the contrary is also true. That when you think that rich people are smarter and work harder, then you tend to think that poor people, poor countries, must not be as smart and must not work very hard. That's why they're basically lazy. So this myth is very prevalent in society, and it it affects all of us. I often think that the hardest job of all is looking for a job. If you're out of work and you're trying to find work and your self-esteem is getting put down every time you get a rejection, it's really hard. It's really hard to keep putting yourself out there. And um, I, I've heard that phrase that it's a full-time job being unemployed, right. particularly if you're trying to navigate the systems, be- benefit systems, applying for various different things. It Are can there take any benefits? No. I Not mean, a lot. It's, it's hard to, to get them. If you have to get a bus cross town to go to a food bank right. and then maybe somewhere else to yes, you know, collect unemployment, it can be a full-time job. Right. And so how is that then, that attitude that we so many people internalize here in the U.S. because it's so dominant, how is that now manifesting itself, say, in right now the dominant economic discussions are around the fiscal cliff and it seems to be, okay, we need to cut entitlement programs. It's mm-hmm. the ongoing chant from the Republicans and we need to not cut, not raise taxes or to cut taxes on the rich because they're the ones who are the job creators. Can you maybe connect the dots a little bit with what we're seeing happening with the fiscal cliff debate? Frank Luntz is this political commentator. So he comes up with these terms for conservative politicians to use. So he says every time you call a capitalist a job creator, every time you call CEO benefits, bonuses, you call them, uh, oh, what was the term now? Sorry. Um, and then, of course, economic freedom is the term for, um, oh, 
pay for pay for performance, he calls it, which is nonsense because many CEOs get these huge bonuses when they're not performing well, you know, but he calls it pay for performance because it sounds very good. Of course, the state tax, you know, the idea that a super billionaire doesn't just hand it over to his children, but, you know, some of it has to be taxed. He calls it death tax. So all these terms to discourage, um, you know, a safety net. And, of course, there are equal number of terms applied to the poor. Yes. I mean, even that phrase entitlement programs right. as if Stupid. you have you have not worked to get this, right. whereas right. people are actually paying into a fund right. of Social Security, more like a savings scheme. Right. The idea that 47% of the people, you know, trying not to work. Um, and economic freedom, the, the idea that amassing the maximum amount of money possible and wealth possible and land possible is somehow a human right and somehow related to the other fundamental rights. So economic freedom, it's nonsense. It's not freedom. It's, it's greed. And, you know, I'm a yoga teacher. So as a yoga teacher, I know that everybody's got both positive and negative emotions and tendencies inside us. A thousand years ago, if you got in an argument with somebody, you might well take out a sword and settle it that way. But today, every country of the world has laws against murder and violence. Now they work with more or less effect for effectiveness. For example, if you know there's a proliferation of handguns, you can grab a gun and shoot somebody and think second. But the idea is to discourage people from being violent and aggressive. We don't have the same laws against greed and selfishness. And I think we need similar laws to discourage that. So I think we need laws to discourage. Basically, what we need is a ceiling on wealth. Now, that sounds very radical. But in every level of government in this country, you have a minimum income for a starting federal worker, and you have a ceiling on wealth. The president of the United States doesn't get an unlimited amount of money. He doesn't get unlimited bonuses. He's got a very fixed salary, and it's 10 times what the starting federal worker gets. In Norway, it's only five times difference. But in this country, 10 times is considered reasonable. The difference between a general, the senior general in the military, and a starting private, again, 10 times. So we have these uh, ceilings on wealth, but we don't have it in the society at large. And I think we need that. At the beginning of the interview, when we were talking about Prout and the fundamentals of mm -hmm. progressive utilization theory and how it's an egalitarian concept, you also said it's very, it's spiritual and it's, you know, a lot of spirituality is based in this. I can see how this would appeal to faith-based communities. I mean, even if you just look, say, Christianity. I of mean, course. It's easier for, I'm going to get this wrong, but it's easier for a rich, it's easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than a rich man to get into heaven. I mean, there's right. that phrase from the Bible. And I know a lot of other of the main religions have similar concepts. And yet, maybe I'm wrong, but we haven't seen a response to this, what seems to be uncontrolled greed and this uncontrolled, this culture of amassing wealth. We haven't seen a response from those faith communities. Do you see that as something that's missing and that could also be crucial to a real paradigm shift? Well, there are faith-based communities that are very progressive and, and constantly doing social justice campaigns. For example, the Quakers, the Catholic workers. Um, in Latin America, where I work, 
um, leaders of the Catholic Church have told me that for 500 years, there have been two Catholic churches, one for the rich, one for the poor. I've got lots of friends who are priests, nuns, lay people in the social movements with the Catholic poor, with the poor. Um, and so, and we're uh, seeing that now with the nuns on the bus tour, of course, who are trying to really yes. dispel that myth that yes. Catholicism is all about abortion, where right. really it's a social, economic right. justice issue. Right, it's wonderful, and uh, so yes, uh, but you know, getting back to the bigger issue, everybody has their own faith or lack of faith. That's a personal feeling, belief, but. I think that we should recognize that we're all connected. We're one human family. We're like brothers and sisters, and we have to treat one another like one human family. We can't exclude people. Nobody is expendable. We can't throw people in in horrible torture prisons and throw away the key. Um, We have to help people. And a doctor, you know, who's got a patient he can't cure, he doesn't kill them. You know, he tries to help them. Uh, So we shouldn't be killing anyone. Uh, Killing people to teach that killing isn't right. It doesn't make sense. Um, And at the same time, we, we, you know, use these ecological principles that we're connected to nature, that we need to protect the environment. Capitalism is excluding the environment. It's destroying the environment. And unless we save our environment, we we don't save our planet. We don't save our human life. We've just had a major political uh, election here, another presidential election. Barack Obama elected into office for a second term. We talked earlier about how the change is coming from the grassroots. It's not coming from the political class. Do you see, though, change being necessary also to come from the political class? Or can we really change things just from a grassroots level? Well... Both in 2008, I was very impressed with the American people. (laughs) And again, now I'm very impressed because, you know, when I was a child, if you, if no political analyst would dare to imagine that first a black man could become president of the country and a black man with the name of, you know, Barack Hussein Obama, I mean, totally impossible. It happened. Why? Because the majority of of people in this country had an open mind and were willing to to judge a person, man or woman, by his or her, you know, experience and potential and not by his or her name or the color of his or her skin. That's a tremendous advancement. It's another tremendous advancement that Latino community mobilized that the, the people of this country, the common people of this country, mobilized and refused to backtrack to a conservative uh, uh, exploitive model. You know, there's three ways to respond to exploitation. One is silence. One is by gradual reform that may take a very long time. And one is by pushing a revolutionary change. And I believe in a revolution with love. And that's what I stand for. And that's a great note to end on. Dada Mahash Varananda, a monk, a writer, social activist, director of the Prout Research Institute of Venezuela and author of the brand new book, After Capitalism, Economic Democracy in Action. Find out more at aftercapitalism.org. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Maeve. And that was It's the Economy. Fantastic. Another fantastic interview on It's the Economy. You're listening to KGNU. 
And uh, we're in Boulder and Denver at 88.5 FM, 1390 AM. Up in the mountains there around Nederland at 93.7 FM. And everywhere else in the world on KGNU.